Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to yet another fabulous edition of the K-Worth Theater of the Air. I'm one of your two hosts, David Reidstrom. I'm David Brunel Brotman. Greetings and salutations. Greetings and salutations, indeed. Well met, sir. Welcome to today's program. Today's theme, Escapes. The Great Escape. The Greatest Escape. Best Escape Ever. And today we are going to uh, feature things that are exclusively themed around the idea of getting away and uh, escaping. Passover is, of course, coming up, so there will be there will be a sketch that is themed around the biblical exodus. Yes. The greatest escape of all. Greater, yes. greater even, Dave. Greater even than... The great escape itself? <laughs> <laughs> Difficult to say. Difficult to say, indeed. I... Clearly, what's going to happen, what's going to have to happen over the course of this program, is that uh, we are going to have to debate whether uh, Passover was a greater escape than the Great Escape. Hmm. Now I'm just imagining Moses in the cooler, you know, throwing a little like reed ball that he stuck together with bits of mud. You know, against the side. I, I've never this... actually seen The Great Escape. Oh, okay. So it's about this prisoner of war camp, right? And I, I guess it's Steve McQueen keeps on trying to escape. Okay. And so the Germans put him in, in Zakula, in this uh, confinement. Um, it's like a trailer, I guess. It's just this tiny little um, prison room, and he just throws a baseball <laughs> against the wall just at all hours of the day to prevent himself from going nuts. Okay. And they're always plotting ways to get out of there, you know, digging a tunnel. It's crazy. Did they escape? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good movie. So um, today's theme, escaping. And uh, first up for you, we have an excellent escape. It is an escape from horrible fishmen. Yes, uh, we are. We are playing yet another part of our Shadow over Innsmouth uh, series. Yep. Yep. Who who produced those? David, what's the name of that? Of the um, Lovecraft HP Lovecraft the, Society. It's difficult to say because they have a bunch of made up that they they have a bunch of sort of made up people associated with the production. Right. So there's there's if you hear in the intro there's uh, Dark Adventure Radio Theater, mm-hmm. which I think is made up. There's but it's difficult to tell. There's the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. And uh, I know the company that distributes it is called Micro Cinema. One of those three entities actually made um, this thing, but it's difficult to tell who hmm. exactly did it. Well, okay, so we're going to play you as we did before. We're going to play the uh, the title sequence to get everyone reacquainted with the story. Uh, this is an H.P. Lovecraft horror adaptation about a guy that travels to a very creepy little town in Massachusetts. Also, there are fishmen. Horrible, horrible fishmen. Enjoy. Following a transfer. On the top of the lower state theater building. Colossal, tremendous. Tales of intrigue. Adventure and the mysterious occult that will stir your imagination and make your very blood run cold. Dark Adventure Radio Theater with your host, Chester Langfield. Today's episode, H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. A young man's journey takes him to a dilapidated seafront town rife with deformed characters and ungodly secrets. Can he escape the terrifying town with his life? Or will the sinister residents of Innsmouth and their hellish allies drag him down to a horrid fate beneath the waves? But first, a word from our sponsor. You know, folks, whenever I feel glum or weary after a long day in the studio, I get my energy back by lighting up a fleur de cigarette. 
The road to pleasure is thronged with smokers who have discovered the superior fragrance and mellow mildness of fleur-de-lis. You'll enjoy their pleasing, energizing effect, and they never get on your nerves. Fleur-de-lis. Smoke as many as you want. And now, Dark Adventure Radio Theater presents H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Good God, man. Why didn't you tell me this before? I didn't believe him, McGraw. It was an episode at once mad and pitiful, grotesque and terrifying. But, puerile though the weird allegory was, old Zadok's insane earnestness and horror added to my sense of loathing for the town and its blight of intangible shadow. The hour had grown perilously late. My watch said 7.15, and the Arkham bus left Town Square at 8, so I walked rapidly toward the hotel where I'd checked my bag and would find my bus. Near the corner of Fall Street, I began to see scattered groups of whisperers. <laughs> when I finally reached the square, I saw that almost all the loiterers were congregated around the door of the Gilman house. It seemed as if many bulging, watery, unblinking eyes looked oddly at me as I claimed my valise in the lobby, and I hoped that none of these unpleasant creatures would be my fellow passengers on the coach. I stood next to an evil-looking fellow and was greatly relieved to see the bus arriving a few minutes early. Excuse me. Excuse me, please. <clears throat> one ticket to Arkham, one way. The bus is broke. What? Bus is broke. But you just... Ends in trouble. Not going anywhere. Oh. When will it be fixed? Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow? It can't be fixed tonight? No. Well... Is there some other way I can get to Arkham tonight? I'm expecting... There ain't no other way. Can't go nowhere. Have to spend the night. Gilman House will give you a room cheap. No other way. You again. Yeah, hello. Um, the, the bus uh, broke down. I got a room for ye. Well, my funds are rather... Uh, Large room, <laughs> top floor, no water, one dollar. Um, yes. Well, then that will be fine. Room 428, all the way up. My room was a dismal rear one, with two windows... And bare, cheap furnishings overlooking a dingy courtyard. At the end of the corridor was a bathroom, a discouraging relic with ancient appointments. As far as I could tell, I was the hotel's only guest. I turned on the one feeble electric bulb over the bed and tried to read a newspaper I picked up in the lobby. Well, I felt it advisable to keep my mind occupied. Dinsmouth is decaying, squalor. But I wouldn't advise you to try. I want to know what the real horror here is. My fancies got the better of me, and I went to bolt the door, but was disturbed to find there was no bolt. One had been there, as marks clearly showed, but there were signs of recent removal. No doubt it had been out of order, like so many other things in this decrepit edifice. Well, in my nervousness, I looked around and discovered a bolt on the clothes press, which seemed to be of the same size. I busied myself by transferring this hardware to the vacant place with the aid of a handy three-in-one device, including a screwdriver, which I kept on my keyring. The bolt fitted perfectly, and I was somewhat relieved when I knew that I, I could shoot it firmly upon retiring. There were adequate bolts on the two lateral doors to connecting rooms, and these I proceeded to fasten. I decided to read till I was sleepy and laid down with only my coat, collar, and shoes off. I took a hotel matchbook from the bedside ashtray and placed it in my pocket so that I could read my watch if I woke up later in the dark. That's when I heard it. At first I thought another guest was in the hotel, but there were no voices, and the creaking was somehow subtly furtive. Was this one of those inns where travelers were slain for their money? Or were the townsfolk really so resentful about curious visitors?
Without a shadow of a doubt, someone was trying to enter my room. I kept deathly quiet, awaiting the would-be intruder's next move. Terrified though I was, I knew the one thing to do was get out of that hotel alive as quickly as I could and through some other way than the front stairs and lobby. I rose to turn on the light. The power had been cut off. Clearly some cryptic evil movement was afoot on a large scale. Just what? I could not say. I tiptoed to the windows and saw only a sheer three-story drop to the cobbled courtyard. On the right and left, however, some ancient brick business blocks abutted on the hotel, their slant roofs coming to a reasonable jumping distance from my fourth-story level. To reach either of these buildings, I would have to be in a room, two from my own, either to the north or south. I could not risk the corridor where my footsteps would surely be heard and I might not be able to access the room. I would have to go through the less solidly built connecting doors of the rooms and use my shoulder as a battering ram if they were set against me. My outer door I reinforced by pushing the bureau against it, little by little, in order to make a minimum of sound. My chances were slender, but I was fully prepared for any calamity. Even getting to another roof, I'd still have to make it to the ground and flee. The door on the south side of the room opened in my direction, but the door on the north was hung to open away from me. It was locked from the other side, but I knew that must be my route. For a moment, I simply held my breath and waited. Eternity seemed to elapse, and the nauseous, fishy odor of my environment seemed to mount suddenly and spectacularly. I drew the bolt of the northward connecting door, bracing myself for the task of battering it open. The knocking grew louder, and I, I hoped that its volume would cover the sound of my efforts. I lunged again and again at the thin paneling with my left shoulder. The door resisted more than I expected, but I did not give in, and all the while the clamor at the outer door increased. I rushed into the next room and succeeded in bolting the hall door before the lock could be turned. But even as I did so, I heard the hall door of the third room the one from whose window I had hoped to reach the roof below, being tried with a pass key. I made it into the third room and opened the window that offered the best access as they began an assault on the flimsy connecting door. The bedstead slowed their progress, despite their use of some kind of battering ram. The window was flanked by heavy velour draperies. I yanked at the hangings and brought them down, pole and all. Then quickly, hooking two of the curtain rings in the shutter catch, I flung the drapery outside. The heavy folds reached fully to the abutting roof, and I saw that the rings and catch would be likely to bear my weight. It's a miracle you got out of there in one piece. I know. I landed safely on the steep roof and hurried to a gaping black skylight. I glanced at the window I just left and saw it was still dark. There seemed to be no one in the courtyard below, and I hoped I could get away before the spreading of a general alarm. I clambered over the brink of the skylight and dropped down onto the dusty floor. Oh, the place was ghoulish looking, and I struck a match. I made it once for the staircase, revealed by its feeble light. The steps creaked, and I raced down past a barn-like second story to the ground floor. I reached the lower hall and darted out the back door to the grass-grown cobblestones of the courtyard. I walked softly across the courtyard, looking for a door that would give me access to the street. I looked across the courtyard to the Gilman House, where a large crowd of doubtful shapes was pouring into the street. Lanterns bobbed in the darkness, moving uncertainly. They did not know where I had gone. Their features were indistinguishable, but the crouching shambling gate was abominably repellent. One figure was strangely robed and unmistakably surmounted by a tall tiara. We found out from the hotel. The fishy odor was detestable, and I, I wondered I could stand it without fainting. I opened a door off the courtyard and came upon an empty room with closely shuttered windows. Fumbling in the flicker of another paper match, I opened the shutters and tumbled out onto Washington Street. I headed south, hoping to make my way to the road to Arkham. I walked rapidly, close to the ruined houses. Ahead of me was an open square, fully flooded with moonlight. 
My best option was to cross it boldly and openly, imitating the typical shamble of the Innsmouth folk as best I could. No one was about, though a curious sort of buzz or roar seemed to be increasing in the direction of Town Square. South Street led down towards the waterfront, and I hoped that no one would be glancing up it from afar as I crossed in the bright moonlight. Involuntarily, I paused for a second to take in the side of the sea. <laughs> Gorgeous in the burning moonlight at the street's end. You know, far out beyond the breakwater was the dim, dark line of Devil Reef, and as I glimpsed it, I could not help thinking of all the hideous legends which portrayed this ragged rock as a veritable gateway to realms of unfathomed horror and inconceivable abnormality. Then, without warning, I saw intermittent flashes of light on the distant reef. Well, they were definite and unmistakable, and to make matters worse, there now flashed forth from the lofty cupel of the Gilman House, which loomed behind me, a series of analogous, though differently spaced gleams, which could be nothing less than an answering signal. What the whole proceeding meant, I could not imagine. Unless it involved some strange rite connected with Devil Reef, or unless some party had landed from a ship on that sinister rock. It was then that the most horrible impression of all was borne in upon me. I saw that the moonlit waters between the reef and the shore were alive with a teeming horde of shapes swimming toward the town. All the bobbing heads and flailing arms were alien and aberrant in a way scarcely to be expressed or consciously formulated. I heard the hue and cry of organized pursuit. They were blocking off the southward highway ahead of me. I had to find another way out of Innsmouth. They were not following me directly. Rather, they were simply obeying a general plan of cutting off my escape. If they were patrolling this one, all roads out of Innsmouth were likely cut off. Then, I thought of the abandoned railway stretching off to the northwest. I'd seen it clearly from my hotel window and knew about how it lay. It seemed my only chance of deliverance, and there was nothing to do but try it. I consulted the grocery boy's map with the aid of one of my few remaining matches and soon started once more. I hurried along Babson Street until I reached Elliott Street. I heard noises and ducked behind a car. A sudden rise in the fishy odor nearly choked me. Then I saw a band of crouching shapes loping and shambling in the direction I was headed and knew that this must be the party guarding the Ipswich Road. Two of the figures I glimpsed were in voluminous robes and one wore a peak diadem. When the last of the band was out of sight, I resumed my progress, darting around the corner. You know, my greatest dread was in recrossing moonlit South Street. At the last moment, I decided I'd better make the crossing, as before, in the shambling gait of an Innsmouth native. When the view of the water again opened out, I was determined not to look at it. But <laughs> I could not resist. I cast a sidelong glance as I shambled toward the protecting shadows ahead. The first thing which caught my eye was a small rowboat pulling in toward the abandoned wharves, laden with some bulky tarpaulin-covered object. Several swimmers were also still discernible, while on the far black reef I could see a faint, steady glow, unlike the winking beacon visible before, and of a curious color which I could not precisely identify. The fishy odor now closed in again with maddening intensity. I'd not quite crossed the street when I saw a muttering band advancing into the open square less than a block ahead of me. At this range, I could see the bestial abnormality of their faces and the dog-like subhumanness of their crouching gait. One man moved in a positively simian way, with long arms frequently touching the ground, while another figure, robed and tiarid, nearly hopped. I do not know whether they saw me or not. If they did, my stratagem must have deceived them, but they passed on across the moonlit space. No one was stirring on Bates Street beside the River Gorge, and it was an easy run past great brick warehouse walls. At last, I saw the ancient train station, or what was left of it, and made directly for the tracks that started from its farther end. The rails were rusty, but mainly intact, and not more than half the ties had rotted away. I hurried as best I could down the tracks which followed the side of the river gorge until I reached the long-covered bridge which crossed the chasm at a dizzying height. I entered, stepping tie to tie. A cloud of bats flapped past me. About halfway across, there was a perilous gap in the ties. I risked a desperate jump, which fortunately succeeded, and I soon emerged on the far side of the river. The dense growth of weeds and briars hindered me, but also provided some covers. The tracks were clearly visible from the Rowley Road, which ran along the tracks before it cut across them. I glanced behind me, but saw no pursuer. The ancient spires and roofs of decaying Innsmouth gleamed, lovely and ethereal in the magic yellow moonlight, and I thought of how they must have looked in the old days before the shadow fell. Then, as my gaze circled inland from the town, something less tranquil arrested my notice. I saw motion. A very large horde must be pouring out of the city along the level Ipswich Road. The distance was great, and I could distinguish nothing in detail, but I did not at all like the look of that moving column. It undulated too much and glistened too brightly in the rays of the moon. Where could so many persons be coming from? 
I thought of those extreme Innsmouth types said to be hidden in, in crumbling centuried warrens near the waterfront. Of those nameless swimmers I had seen. I mean, did those ancient, unplumbed warrens teem with a twisted, uncatalogued, and unsuspected life? Or had some unseen ship indeed landed a legion of unknown outsiders on that hellish reef? Who were they? Why were they here? tracks cut through a low hill and were heavily overgrown. I struggled along at a very slow pace, and the damnable fishy odor again waxed dominant. Had the wind suddenly changed eastward so that it blew in from the sea and over the town? Something was coming up the Rowley Road. I buried myself into the brush, praying that while I could see where the road crossed the tracks, they should not be able to see me. I could not bear to see the source of the sound. I would keep my eyes shut until the sound receded to the west. But my resolution to keep my eyes shut failed. It was foredoomed to failure, for who could crouch blindly while a legion of croaking, baying entities of unknown source flopped noisomely past, scarcely more than a hundred yards away? I thought I was prepared for the worst. My other pursuers had been accursedly abnormal, but nothing that I could have imagined. Nothing, even had I credited old Zadok's crazy tale in the most literal way, would be in any way comparable to the demonic, blasphemous reality that I saw in a limitless stream, flopping, hopping, croaking, bleeding, urging inhumanly through the spectral moonlight and a grotesque, malignant, saraband of fantastic nightmare. And some of them had tall tiaras of that, that nameless, whitish gold metal, and, and some were strangely robed. And one who led the way was clad in a ghoulishly humped black coat and striped trousers and, and had a man's felt hat perched on a shapeless thing that answered for a head. Good God. Did you ever really see them yourself, McGraw, uh, up close? They were a grayish green, though they had white bellies. They were mostly shiny and slippery, but the ridges of their backs were scaly. Their forms vaguely suggested the anthropoid, while their heads were the heads of fish, with prodigious bulging eyes that never closed. At the sides of their necks were palpitating gills, and their long paws were webbed. And they hopped irregularly, sometimes on two legs and sometimes on four I was somehow glad that they had no more than four limbs. Their croaking, baying voices, clearly used for articulate speech, held all the dark shades of expression which their staring faces lacked. But for all their monstrousness, they were not unfamiliar to me. They were the blasphemous fish frogs of the nameless design, living and horrible. Their number was past guessing. It seemed to me that there were limitless swarms of them. In another instant, everything was blotted out by a merciful fit of fainting. The first I had ever had. So spooky! You're listening to KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. This is the KWUR Theater of the Air. Run!
You might think indoor tanning is safe, yet UV light from indoor tanning can increase your risk of skin cancer, including melanoma, the deadliest form of skin cancer. Indoor tanning is out. A message from the American Academy of Dermatology and KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. This is the K-Worth Theater of the Air. Hey, Dave. Yes, David. Will you get me a flopping, hopping, croaking, ghoulish saraband of nightmares for my birthday? I'll think about it. Sure. You mean you'll really, you'll really get me the National Republican Convention? Thank you. Thank you. Tip your servers. We'll be here all week. Well, we'll be here for the next, until the end of the hour. Well, we'll be here. We just won't. Yeah, we'll, we will we be won't here. We won't be on the radio. We will definitely be here in St. Louis, but we will uh. This has become complicated. Mm. Today's theme <laughs> on the K-Word Theater of the Air is Great Escapes. You just heard the third installment of H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Very fittingly called The Escape. Indeed, which... Uh, I, I thought that was a pretty exciting escape. Yo, Dave, guess what starts tomorrow? Uh, Monday. Yes. But <laughs> I should have said, hey, Dave, guess which Jewish holiday starts tomorrow? Monday. Y- yes. The <laughs> Passover begins tomorrow night. I believe that is the first night of Passover. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, And in order to commemorate that, we are going to play you a sketch that is compl- that is based on some ancient scrolls we found. Um, no, it is not. And it talks about the best escape. The the best. The Exodus-scape. The Bexodus. The Bexodus? I think that's where... That's when Bex I think that's when recording Beck labels. leaves somewhere. <laughs> Whenever Beck leaves a building... It's the Bexodus. The Bexodus. Well, it's like all of his It groupies. happens several times a day. But it's very dramatic. They play the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. It's great. It's awesome. So here's a little sketch, uh, appropriately Passover and appropriately escape-themed, that we like to call the Schnorrer of Giza. I'll play it already. The Valley of Kings, Egypt, 1921. Wiggins? Wiggins, come here. Bring the light. Yes, yes, I'm here, Dr. Motherby. I'm here. Bring the light. I need the light. Got it right here. Wiggins, I believe I've, I've found something absolutely wonderful. It's ancient graffiti, Wiggins. My goodness. What does it say? It's a slave diary, Wiggins, of a young man building a pyramid. If my knowledge of hieroglyphics is correct, the, the man who wrote this record is Philip Moskowitz mm, Carmen. Uh, day 433. Oi, Gavolt, what a long, 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 long a day it's been. Ezekiel and I were pulling rocks to the construction site. All right, on two. One, One two, One, two, two, and two, and two. Oh, this is, you know, my mother told me she wanted me to go to embalmer school, but I said, no, I didn't want to be an embalmer. You and your embalmer school? Let me tell you, my sinuses are flaring up right now from all this sand. Well, you know, there's always going to be sand. Well, you're never not going to. You've bad. had I mean, sinus I'm problems going since to the we best moved to the ENT peninsula. and Sinai here, and I got to tell you, he's not really doing much for me. My back. Is more is broken in oh, more places back. My sinuses, than the reed that my, my father sinuses. used to beat me to sleep with every night. Oh my God! You always bring that up. Such surus in I my think... family. What are the two of you doing over there? No, we were just we pulling, pulling rocks, rocks pulling overseer. Silence! Yep. Yep. Clearly not very well. I have a new task for you. Two. Well, I mean, a I have a back task. issue. I'm, I was only allowed to do one task. Silence! I, was told... I do not care about your ailments. I have a new task for you idiots. Oh, my mother told me I was only good at one thing, pulling rocks. I, so I took an aptitude that's all test. I can do. I'm actually better suited for upper Jeez. management. Enough! You must clean the royal crocodiles. In, in what se- do you mean like like the crocodile is and, like and some fancy word for a carriage? Or and something? I don't even know if I'm allowed to do that. Ow! Silence! Ow! You must clean their teeth. We can do that. With your teeth. Oh, we can't do that. No, I can't do that. Ow! Also, Al! Ezekiel and I found ourselves in the crocodile pits. And with great trepidation, we began our task. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, take your head out of there, Ezekiel. 
I was just thinking, Ezekiel, that we could get out of here. Yeah, I know this guy Moses. He's oh, uh, he's pretty high up in the Pharaoh's household. And oh, everything. oh, okay. A politician is going to get us out of this mess. You well, think? you know, he's not all bad. I mean, he's promising a lot of things. He's going to split the Red Sea. Okay. He's going to turn this staff into a snake, okay. and he's going to he's going to make it rain locusts. Let and me all stop you stuff. right there. How is he on Israel? He's foreign. Well, well, all right, Mr. Smart Alec. How, how are we going to get in touch with this Moses fellow instead of playing gator golf here with our faces? I will tell you how. I'll tell you how. Okay, uh, are you all packed? I, I think so. Uh, um, geez, did you bring your socks? Did you bring your socks? Which socks? The blue ones with the purple stripes. I think so. All right, good. If, if I pack them, they're at the very bottom. Oh, jeez. Well, let me Hold go on. check. I'm okay, gonna go you go check. check. I'm going to check. Oh, here they are. Never mind. Sorry, here they are. Don't forget the pants. Yes. Don't forget the microwave. I got the microwave. Don't forget the toaster. Uh, Don't forget the Ferrari. Okay. Bring everything. Uh, I'm not sure if the Ferrari was going to fit, so I sold it. Good idea. How much? I got, I got these uh, flatbreads. They're very tasty. They're very crunchy here. Hold on. Let me try one. Mmm. You know what? This would taste great with Haroset. My friend Matt sold it to me. It's a pizza that my friend Matt made. He calls it Matza. That's good. Yeah, you Tasty. like that? I, I think it's a coup that we got the rights to this thing. Oh, my God. My pocket sundial. Oh, jeez. You're late. You're late. We're late. We're both late. I know. What are we going to do? We got to run. Let's he- run. Here, take my valise. Thank you. The exodus, the cloud of dust, it's moving ahead of us. There it is, there it is. Uh, except I just can't... I think, I feel like... I think I left the garage door open. You always say this. Every time we leave the house, you're like, I left something. Listen, what is, if, what's going to happen? It, if I left it open, a raccoon might get in. You want to go home? You want to go right, home? Let's, let's turn around. Let's, let's go home. I think, it's a, I think it's a good idea. the garage door open. I think it's a good idea. Fine. Closed. It's closed. It's closed. Yeah. It's closed. We missed the exodus because of your misgivings. It's not a big deal. About it. we should. Do, we could go right now. We could go. Oh sure, sure. Because they're not going to be looking for us now because there's so many won't. Jews left I in this country. They won't. Okay. Ninety-nine point seven eight percent of their of their workforce is missing. So you're saying that we're the point two two? Because I don't want to be the point two two. Well you are the point two two. You two slaves get back to work. You are now reassigned to cleaning duty. Polish the Sphinx with your tongue. Oi Gavolt. And so I decided to put my non smilus to stylus and carve this missive of unhappiness into the walls of the tomb I was constructing. What a miserable life I have led. Signed, Philip Moskowitz and Carmel. My God, Wiggins. This will make us insanely rich. We shall go back and we shall be the toast of the London Historical Society. Wiggins? Wiggins? Oi. Oh my god, a mummy! Ah, I can't see. There's toilet paper all over my eyes. You know how dry I am. I need moisturizer. They don't give you any of the moisturizer when they wrap you up in this toilet paper. I should sue. <laughs> You're listening to the K Word Theater of the Air here on KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. You can listen online at www.kwur.com. You can also find our podcast on iTunes by searching for the K Word Theater of the Air. That's Theater E R, not R E, because we're not pretentious. <laughs>
Diary entry. June the 14th. Body aches. Rashes. <laughs> now, my hair is falling out. I need some answers. Could I have lupus? <laughs> Darn it! I promised myself I wouldn't laugh at this. <laughs> and I promised myself I wouldn't cry. <laughs> oh, no. But that's oh, not no. exactly coming to pass either. Shh, 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 shh. I need some answers. <laughs> could, I, could I have lupus? <laughs> I'm not laughing at the disease. I'm laughing at the text, which is bad. Could, go to couldihavelupus.gov or call 1-800-994-9662. This is the K-Word <laughs> Theater of the Air. I'm so unprofessional. On KWUR Clayton 90.3 FM. We have lupus. And we are not giving it back. Could I have lupus? I know it's supposed to be like a like a plea, but it just sort of sounds like Oliver Twist is asking for some. I shouldn't have chosen that public service announcement. Why did you choose that one? I don't know. It fell open you to You should that. know better. I'll read a better one. David Reinstrom, you are banned from reading. <sighs> don't be afraid to take on the tough classes in high school. You need them to succeed in college. To find out what most colleges require, visit knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. We here at the KWUR uh, Theater of the Air sincerely apologize for giggling through that last public service announcement. It was inappropriate. And I will not read that one again. Yeah, that that is a lie. And you know it. I'm going to make you do it. Oh. I'm going to make you do it, and Did I'm we ever not going to stop. Did we ever conquer the, uh, the bonfire one? Uh, I think we came really close one time. All right. No no more meta show. No more meta show. No more meta show. We that, have... that can be for a different week. We can have a meta-themed show. Ooh. It'll oh, be, I like that. It'll, it'll all be... Um, It'll, it'll be sketches Hi, about the show. Hi, this is the, the director's show. commentary for uh, March 28th edition of the uh, the Kworth Theater of the Air. Like, um, uh, when when we when we first started talking about of, this show, I guess um, kind of like you would talk well, about I, the show. I, I wasn't sure show, what or maybe which theme we would go for because at first I thought we were going to play both parts of the Lovecraft piece. Um, and Dave said, no, let's just do the escape so we can do the great escape. Uh, and I thought that was a good idea. Um, I didn't – I wasn't sure about playing the Schnorrer of Giza again, but Dave assured me that because um, Passover was coming up, it was a good decision. Yeah. No, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think that would be cool because then you could – and you could talk about the show while you're doing the show. And I, I feel like that would be – just a mind. We have a sketch about us doing sketches. It would, it, your mind would be blown, and it would be crazy. But that's not this week's theme. This no. week's theme is escapes. Yes, escapes. great escapes. The greatest escapes. Thus far, we've had escapes from fish people. We've had escapes from Egypt, and now escapes from babies. <laughs> You're ridiculous. Yes, yes, escapes from babies. Um, Next up. Uh, we have for you another original sketch called Murloc Bones. Play it. And now, the thrilling adventures of Murloc Bones, deductive genius and private investigator for hire. Once an aspiring chemist, Bones was killed in his prime by a mysterious assailant. Now, rising from his grave, his tortured spirit cannot rest until he solves the mystery of his own murder. In the meantime, however, Murloc is content to have opened his own investigatory service, using his unique skills and a complete lack of skin and muscle to solve crimes. We now take you to his study, where Murloc sits before a steady fire, writing his diary. Raining again. My new assistant is set to come in this morning. He seemed promising in the interview. He didn't seem terribly put off at my appearance, which is always a good sign. He certainly seemed a decent sort. And were I still able to smell, I would probably have sent some sort of pomade in his hair, placing him in a class just above the criminal element. This will be useful. He should be due in any minute. Come in. Mr. Bowen, sir. Ah, Fenris McDougal. Do come in. Ah, thank you, sir. Tis better cold than wet outside. As though I could tell, Mr. McDougal. I can't feel a blasted thing, you know. 
Here, give me your coat and I'll get you a cup of hot tea. Mm, thank you, sir. When shall we begin? Well, sir, I dare say we shall begin right off with a bit of a forensic experiment. Here's your tea. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That will help us discover the identity of a fiendish murderer. Sir. Yes, the murder to which I refer is that of Miss Millie Mountebank, the actress. Read about it in the papers I did. Grizzly stuff. Indeed. Three knife wounds to the calf, two on her ankles, and one higher up on her thigh, hitting her femoral artery. She was assaulted outside the theater after a performance, collapsed, and bled to death. Didn't she cry out for help? When Scotland Yard arrived, they found her with a gag in her mouth. And they found this. A piece of fabric, sir. Yes, a piece of her dress with a mysterious white powder on it. Curious, Mr. Bones. Now, lacking a nose and not wishing to submit you to a sniff test of evidence on your first day, I think the best way to identify this powder is with some old-fashioned chemical analysis. So, if you please, sir, help me move this apparatus over here. Thank you. What a brilliant setup, Mr. Bones. It's so complex. Thank you. I built it myself. Do you have any clues other than the bit of powder, Mr. Bones? Not yet. But my intuition tells me something will emerge. Your intuition, sir? Yes, Mr. McDougall. A detective has no greater tool, sir. With intuition and deductive logic, a man can solve anything at all. Oh, and what have you deduced of me? Your favorite fruit is the damson plum. You eat them dried over granola every morning. I, uh... Thus, when you put your boots on this morning, you put the left one on first. And you take your morning tea with clotted cream. How could you possibly know all that? You've got purple stains on your left hand, and only the damson plum leaves that exact kind of stain. Now, if you've got them on your left hand, that means you held your spoon in your left hand, and thus you put on your left boot first. But how did you know to put clotted cream in my tea? You've got some on your beard. Oh, how embarrassing. And our analysis is done. It is indeed, sir. What have you found? Mr. McDougall, this mysterious white powder is, as I suspected, talcum. Indeed, sir. Yes, and from the size and shape of the individual grains, I can tell you precisely at which London plant it was produced. Fetch your coat, Mr. McDougall. We're going for a stroke. So this is where they make talcum powder. Yes, yeah, see? They take blocks of talc and grind them under those millstones with cornmeal to create baby powder. Fascinating. Now remember, McDougall, disguised as we are, no one will ever see through our deceit, as long as we pretend to be Frenchmen. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, hello, sirs. Can I help you at all? Ah, uh, oui, monsieur. We have come to inspect your records. We are, uh, auditors, my partner and I. Uh, in the interest of corporate and ethical transparency, we ask you to open your ledgers. Uh, yes, we. Oh, well, anything for the French, I guess. Come on in. Thank you, sir. Uh, that will be all. Very well, gentlemen. Take your time. The ledger's right there. Ah. Ah, yes. This will do quite nicely. What does it say, Mr. Bones? By my desiccated osseous tissue, McDougal. It's damning evidence that points us in the direction of the killer. What do you mean, sir? Why, most of this talcum is sold to pharmaceutical companies and cosmetic groups. They use the powder as a fixative. But this plant also sells to private buyers. And from the looks of this ledger, to one in particular. Who is it, Mr. Bones? Why, none other than Colonel Kensington. The Louis XIV of crime! You don't mean! I do! The dreaded Colonel Baby! From a young age, the Colonel knew he was destined for a life of science! After a lifetime of study and distinguished military service, he succeeded in creating the Elixir Vitae, the Philosopher's Stone, the potion of eternal life. But he consumed too much of it. It restored his youth, but left him in the form of an infant for eternity. Now bitter at his shape, he bends his awesome intellect towards horrific criminal activity. Indeed, Mr. Bones. <gasps> Colonel Baby! Yes, Bones, it is I, your dreaded nemesis. When I heard you were on the case, I tightened security around my favorite horse. And now I have you. But how could you see through our brilliant disguises? Only Bones would be so bold as to pretend to be French. The only French investors in this phone are personal friends of mine. And so I was 
after the duck said it was you, Bones, and your new assistant, henchman, seize them! You do realize that you're admitting your guilt, don't you? You've come to stop us from finding you out, but in so doing, you're damning yourself. Of course he is, McDougal. But he doesn't expect us to survive this encounter. Do you, Colonel? I don't, Bones. That is why I can admit freely to all present that yes, yes, I killed Mrs. Montebank. She was once my lover, but after my transformation, she left me for dead and married another man. I offered her life eternal, and she rebuffed my advances. So I killed her, and I regret nothing. And what do you intend to do, you fiend? You cannot scare us. Mr. Bones has no nervous system. I intend to use this facility, so ironically purpose to soothe the tender bottoms of small children, to crush your puny bodies into nothing. Hurry, men! Bring them to the grinding mill! Winch them up and dangle them over the millstones! You're a monster! I'm a baby! You'll never get away with this, you scoundrel! Oh, but it looks like I have. Isn't that right, Moloch Bones? It did certainly seem that way, wouldn't it? How can you be so calm at the moment of your undoing? Don't you realize you're about to die? Again? And you there, for the first time. Ignore him, McDougal. I've discovered a structural flaw in this winch system. Shift your weight to the left. Very well, but why, sir? I can tell by the grease stains on this hempen rope that the pulley by which we are suspended is a Winchester model 37AA, which means that its ball bearings only handle a compressive stress of 562 newtons per millimeter squared, which means that if we swing our bodies in such a fashion as to describe a circle with a radius of 1.6 meters, we can shatter the ball bearings and break free with our limber forms intact. Brilliant, sir. Wait, what are you doing? You may have wanted on me, Bones, but I'm... I'm okay. Henchman, do something! Now hold on, Henchman. I can logically deduce that you have a deeply rooted psychological trauma. Clearly, you need to attach yourselves to a higher authority due to childhood parental abandonment issues. Timeouts for all of you. I am very disappointed. <laughs> He's right! He's so right! He's so right! He's so right! Now, Colonel Baby, it's off to Scotland Yard with you! No! Not that place! No! That was a fine first day at work indeed. I'll say, McDougal, you may expect every day to be similarly action-packed. Now let us retire to the parlor, where we may abuse prescription medicines. <laughs> well, that was a good time, wasn't it, Dave? I think that was an excellent time. But, unfortunately, as all good things go, uh, all good things must... Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. As all good things must, this episode of the KWUR Theater of the Air must come to an end. It's sad, <sighs> but true. The theater of the the KWUR Theater of the Air abused its privileges this week under the tender auspices of me, David Reinstrom, and my co-host David Brunel Brudman. Yo, yo, read us some credits, boy. All right, yo. This week, our KWUR Theater of the Air intern was Harry Houdini. Nice guy. But, yeah, uh, he he uh, was a great intern. We haven't seen him in a couple of days. We sent him uh, we sent him to fetch, fetch something, something, and uh, it was what I don't even remember what it was. Oh, something it was a in bottle a of milk uh, wrapped in a straight jacket in a milk crate underwater. Yeah, we haven't seen him in a while. I don't know where he is. I really want that bottle of milk too. Okay, well anyway, uh, our technical director was MacGyver. <laughs> And casting this week uh, by Ronald Reagan. Hold on, hold on, my chair is melting. MacGyver! Wait. 
Okay, let's... Wait, hold on, hold on. Dave, I'm losing my balance. Okay, I'm the getting... The chocolate bar holding this chair together I'm is starting to melt. I'm getting some pine cones okay. and some rubber bands and, like, a paper clip. Who's our last 